I'm Carrie Miller, and each week we add a deep track, a book interview from the archives. This week, as we anticipate a conversation with writer Don Winslow, we're bringing you the 2019 interview I did last time he had a new book out. That novel, The Border, took us deep into the dangerous sphere of the drug cartels and the lives of the investigators who pursue them, and it revealed again what a hall of mirrors that world is. Here's Don Winslow. I'm Carrie Miller, and this is NPR News. Novelist Don Winslow has written at least 1,500 pages about America's war on drugs. He's taken us into the labyrinth of Mexican cartels, revealed the cynical calculations made in the highest echelons of governments, and laid bare the violence and the damage that flow from America's greed for drugs. As his latest novel publishes, Mr. Winslow recently declared on Twitter that he'd said everything he had to say about the war on drugs. Writer Stephen King promptly tweeted back, never say never. Don Winslow's previous novels include The Power of the Dog and The Cartel. His newest is titled The Border, and he joins us from Southern California. Welcome. Good to talk to you again. Thank you for doing this. Good to talk with you. Thanks for having me. You published the first novel of the trilogy 14 years ago, and Mm -hmm. I wondered whether what you thought you were going to be saying about the war on drugs, whether it was going to be a trilogy or not, has changed over the arc of these three novels, and you find yourself saying more or less or something different. Yeah, it absolutely has. You know, that, that book came out 14 or 15 years ago, but I started it 20 years ago. I started this trilogy in 1998, never intending to write a trilogy. It was really one book at a time. And yeah, you know, as I've learned more, as as uh, events have occurred, uh, it's definitely changed my thinking. Has it been, has your thinking been influenced by the way America has changed? And, and I don't just mean what's happening with legalization of drugs in some cities. I mean, our overall thoughts about criminal justice and who takes drugs and, you know, how we see ourselves and, and drugs. Has that yeah, changed? Yeah, it's, abs- it's absolutely changed over the years. You know, I mean, we've had the – when I first started this this project, we were just emerging from the, the crack epidemic. We were emerging. We had entered into the age of mass incarceration. Now, 20 years down the line, we're in the middle of a opioid epidemic that has been partially spurred by legal pharmaceuticals. Uh, and then taken over by illegal heroin. And I'm starting to see, though, a, a kind of groundswell of public opinions definitely coming from the bottom up about issues of legalization, uh, drug treatment versus other strategies, uh, and mass incarceration. I think things are changing. Do you have a sense about why? Yeah, I just think that there's a greater awareness. I mean, look, let let's be brutally frank here. There was never a heroin epidemic until white kids started dying. And and then it started to hit the headlines. But, you know, we lost more people from fatal drug overdoses last year than we did in car accidents or by gun violence. Wow. So you're you're getting to that kind of critical social point where not everybody knows somebody who suffered from this, but everybody knows somebody who knows somebody. You and know, I think that it gets to sort of a Malcolm Gladwell kind of a tipping point, you know, in terms of public opinion. Uh, you know, in that, as I, as I thought about that 
tweet that you sent out about you've said everything there is to say. I do have that right, don't I? That's, that's you do have that right. Okay. What'd you yeah. think, by the Not way, about... Not everything there is to be said, everything that I have to say. to say. What'd you think about yeah. what Stephen King, how he responded to that? Well, he's, he's he, you know, listen, he's been amazingly kind and generous to me over the course of these three books. I always uh, respect what he has to say, and that was nice of him to say. I know exactly what he means. You know, after I wrote the first in this trilogy, The Power of the Dog, I said, I'm never coming back. After I wrote the second book, The Cartel, I said, I, I'm never coming back. So I think Mr. King is is kind of tweaking me on that a little bit, and he's he's quite right to do it. So as I was thinking about our conversation, and I was doing a little bit of research on quests, and I realized that you've, I, I think intentionally, you've also played with the idea of resurrection, which is a very important concept and the overall idea of a quest. And I'm interested in how you thought about that. Yeah, it's it's interesting you bring that up. You know, I, I come from a Catholic background, mm-hmm. you know, so resurrection is <laughs> always mm-hmm. an, an issue uh, since childhood. I, I thought about it more in terms of the border. You know, originally I was going to call this book The Wall, and then I realized I needed something broader than that because I think one of the questions the the book asks, and I think – one of the essential questions for crime fiction is what are the borders? You know, we talk about a a physical border between the U S and Mexico, but there's also these moral, ethical, emotional borders, borders of intimacy, uh, borders of memory. And in terms of resurrection, I, I wanted to know for Keller and for other characters, if that, once you cross those borders, can you cross back? Mm-hmm. And in a sense, that is sort of the idea of resurrection, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, there's an element of, again, whether intentional or not, of kind of purification, which is mm-hmm. which is essential in the idea of resurrection. I mean, you've you've described in a number of different ways what the meaning of that firefight in the jungle is and Art Keller is emerging from – you know, the flames and the questions about what happened to the people that were apparently consumed by the flames. Am I going too far here? No, you're not at all. <laughs> I, um, you're not at all. It was it was quite deliberate. I mean, look, I'm a, I'm a crime writer. I'm not, you know, a high literary writer or a philosopher or anything like that. I, I try to write good crime stories, but, but no, you're absolutely correct. I mean, I think the question I was asking and the question I'd left unfinished at the end of of cartel is that there is this hellish scene and what happens if you do get out of hell and then where do you go what do you do as you've noted there were a lot of questions that to come back and to explore and to advance but i also wonder when you take on something like this that's so immersive and so compelling whether the void on the other side of that can be intimidating. I mean, this has taken, not that you haven't done other work, you have, but this has taken, you said, what, 20 years of your life? Yeah, a third of my life. What's it look like on, as you contemplated that on the other side? I don't know yet. You know, I finished the book about a year ago uh, because books like Babies, you know, have sort of a nine-month gestation period <laughs> without a lot of participation from the father. <laughs> but uh 
you know, now I'm doing this, you know, I'm on tour with the book and talking about it and answering questions and, you know, writing tweets and articles and, and editorials, believe it or not. And so I really haven't left it yet. I have to tell you, I'm a little nervous about it. I was talking to the writer Marlon James about this, and this in a whole different context. He had been uh, consumed by an experience with his church, drawn to this church in his 20s, and then all in, you know, consumed by it. And the moment when he decided that he basically no longer needed what the church was giving him was deeply disorienting. Mm-hmm. What will I do? A, what will I do with my time? What will my thoughts be consumed by? Right? What What will I be preoccupied by? There's a comfort in having something rush into the into the void, to the absence. For the past few months, I haven't gotten up every morning to look at the drug news to see who's died. You know, uh, I don't miss that. Uh, at the same time. I almost feel a little guilty for not doing it. Why? I, I, I think the way I'm thinking about it now is, is to be realistic and thinking, you know, I might leave the war on drugs. I, I don't know that it's ever going to leave me. And if it doesn't? I don't know. I really don't. I'm not trying to be coy or difficult with you. Uh, I, I don't know the answer to that question. You know, I think that there are always going to be certain memories certain sorrows that are going to stay. We're having a conversation with Don Winslow about his third novel in a trilogy. The new novel is called The Border, and he's talking with us from Southern California. Uh, You described a minute ago about uh, thinking about what you would call this novel and deciding that the wall was too limiting. Did I I hear that right? Too limiting? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Because it has such a political connotation, or or why? Not really. I wasn't concerned about the political connotation. It just wasn't broad or deep enough. You know, I realized that that I wanted to write about more than that. I wanted to write about these these borders that we have inside us that we either violate or cross or we don't. I also wanted to talk about the border because, you know, we so often think of borders as things that separate us. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's equally true that borders are things we have in common. We share a border, whether that's a national border or a border between you and your neighbor. Uh, And I wanted to write about not just how borders separate us, but how they link us. If you think about how, I guess, flexible right that perception is because i think mm-hmm. i think you're right that we view a border to the north of this country in a very different way than we view the southern border we view a border just uh, standing back and looking at a particular border in europe very differently than we probably view the border of a country that uh borders a, a an african north african Mm-hmm. country. I mean, think about all of the perceptions that go into the way that, and you have thought about this, that go into the way that we perceive a border. Yeah, you know, it's perception's fascinating, isn't it? Um, we literally, because of the way our maps are drawn, look down at the Mexican border. Right. 
it's literally physically condescending, but I also think that that has its effect on on how we think about it. It's an interesting exercise to to literally flip the map, and I've done this, and look down at the American border. You mean you've, as a kind of an intellectual exercise, you put a map well, on a table. Well, not terribly intellectual, but yeah, as a mental exercise. <laughs> Stop selling that. yourself so short. Um, okay, so you put a map on a table and you turned it around. Yeah. And then what? First of all, you literally see things differently. It forces you to take a fresh perspective. It forces you to think a little bit about what that border is and how it functions. Uh, instead of standing above Mexico and Central America and pointing down and and complaining about the alleged criminality that they bring up, you can now look down at the American border and think about the $65 billion in dirty drug money mm. that is sent up to your country to destabilize it, to fund violent sociopaths of the cartels, to bribe people in your government. Uh, I think it's a good exercise to do. There's a scene where Art Keller, who is now the head of the DEA, is testifying to Congress about the heroin epidemic in the United States. And he tells the, the members of Congress that he started out believing in the kingpin strategy. Mm -hmm. And he says, it roughly parallels our strategy in the war on terror. Unfortunately, it hasn't worked. Isn't that something that over new fresh thinking about this kingpin strategy that has changed over the course of you writing these books over the last 20 years. You know, 9-11 changed a lot of things. It also changed how we approach the war on drugs in the sense that the national preoccupation became quite properly uh, protection against terrorism. And that involved more of a militaristic kind of approach. Well, that approach leaked over into the war on drugs, both in the American government and the Mexican government, to create the kingpin strategy. Keller's right. The kingpin strategy hasn't worked and it can't work. And why? What's your research tell you about that? There's always somebody ready to replace the kingpin because the money is so great. The greatest example currently is is Joaquin, so-called El Chapo <laughs> Guzman trial, mm -hmm. which is hailed in many ways as a big victory in the war on drugs. Now, I'm, I'm happy he was convicted. He certainly belongs in prison. He's done far worse things than what he was charged with. But it made absolutely no difference to the flow of drugs in the United States because he was already a dead item by the time he was captured and recaptured, or else he would not have been. We have had more heroin come into the United States and more deaths since Guzman's been in jail than before. So if you take out a kingpin, there's always someone just, all you've done is create a job opportunity for somebody else who will take it because of the billions of dollars involved. It's a revolving door. One of the things that uh, Art Keller also has to reconcile is the chaos that gets unleashed when a kingpin is taken out, a cartel is not as influential as it once was. And I, I there's this is such a great the way you you write this out through this novel is such a an excellent, naughty, moral conundrum. 
right? I mean, how are you, how are you influencing more deaths and more criminality and more chaos by going in to do what looks like the right thing? That's the dilemma exactly, and that's one of these borders I'm talking about. You know, look, the evidence is clear that certain elements of the Mexican government and therefore by extension the American government at least passively cooperated with Guzman's Sinaloa cartel in order for it to win its struggle against more violent cartels. The Mexicans were desperate to come to some sort of peace and stability in a, in a conflict that has now killed you know, perhaps as many as 200,000 people. So they picked a winner. They picked the least of all evils, and that was the Sinaloa cartel. Then when Guzman falls from power, it started struggles within the Sinaloa cartel, and, and it invited lesser groups to try to rise up again to fill this vacuum. So it's a very tricky choice. You know, on an, on an ethical level, it's, it's easy to say, well, the government was wrong in backing the Sinaloa cartel. On another level, though, you've now seen that Mexico has had two years of its worst violence since uh, they've started keeping track, since the Sinaloa cartel has lost some of its power. So these are extraordinarily difficult issues to deal with. I think of how often the United States is confronted with that dilemma of the least of all evils and mm-hmm. and the the inability so often to see the ripple effect in making a choice about the least of all evils i, I mean in in other arenas i mean you think about some of our other foreign policy decision making you think of well you think about iraq uh, oh my gosh exactly i mean look i, I think that we are often good at getting involved and and we can win certain kinds of decisive battles but sometimes we lack a historical perspective we we don't get granular on on what's going to happen once we do you know lop the head of that organization or that government off we we don't have the the local knowledge or the historical knowledge to predict or handle What's going to happen? Uh, I was curious. You mentioned El Chapo in the trial. Mm-hmm. He was convicted of, what was it, 10 counts of trafficking yeah. and conspiracy? Yep. Was there – I remember the last time you were on to talk about the cartels. We, we talked about him and the case. Mm-hmm. Was there anything now that has been revealed in that trial that, I, that you didn't know, that, that really surprised you about the organization that he had set up? No, not really. I'm sorry to give you a boring <laughs> really? answer, but the yeah. the revelations that came out during the Guzman trial were not revelatory. Do you have you wondered whether El Chapo himself has come to any kind of an answer on whether it was worth being the king for 30 years to spend the next 30 or whatever it is in prison? There's an old saying in the Mexican drug trade, particularly among young people. Better five years as a king than 30 years as a donkey. I think that's what brings a lot of people into the trade, into la pista secreta. But I I have no idea what he's thinking. Uh, I was watching the testimony last week from Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen. Mm -hmm. And um, some of what she was really being pressed on by the members of the committee was the way children 
are being handled at the border, and you've got a an excellent uh, kind of parallel theme running here in the novel about what happens when a child seeks asylum and how he ends up getting radicalized. But I want you to hear this exchange between Secretary Nielsen and, and a member of the committee. Mm-hmm. Are we still using cages for children? Uh, sir, we don't use cages for children. In the border facilities that you've been to, uh, they were not made uh, to detain children. As the children are processed through, they are in subparts of those facilities. Uh, madam, Madam. I don't, Secretary? I don't, yes, I'm now, being as clear as I can, sir. Respectfully, well, I'm trying to answer just, your question. Yes or no, are we still putting children in cages? Uh, to my knowledge, CBP never purposely put a child in a cage if uh, you mean uh, a cage uh, like uh, this. Purposely or whatever, uh, are we putting children in cages as of today? Children are processed at the border facility stations that you've been at, some of the And I've areas. seen the cages. I just want you to admit that the cages exist. This is what is so maddening about trying to understand, if you haven't been there, what's happening at the border. There's j- and, and I just I think about how historians are going to write about this. I, I wonder, observations from you as you see this discussion continue. Children were put in cages, no question. Whether they're still there or not, we really don't know because, you know, the information coming out is, is being withheld. It's very difficult to approach these centers. Now, in in the book, In the Border, uh, it takes place several years earlier. I, I wrote that segment long before the, the current so-called crisis you did. Of, of the caravans. Huh. Um, huh. And um, actually, the, the character Nico is in detention during the Obama administration. Right. This is going to go down as one of the most disgraceful episodes in American history. How, how do we, as the United States of America, separate children from their families? It's, it's unconscionable. It's, it's, a, it's a disgrace. This is not who we should be. I, I hate it when people say, this isn't who we are. You know what? Apparently it is. So you wrote that section... You're saying before the emergency declaration and all the stuff mm-hmm. that has come before that, of course. All of that, yeah. What Look, there have been unaccompanied minors coming up across the border for, for years. Most of them children fleeing gang violence in, in the cities of the Northern Triangle. Uh, and so we've struggled for quite a while on, on how to deal with, with these kids. Some of them are put into detention centers. Some of them were released to, to families that may or may not have been documented in the United States. Others were given trials, very often over video cameras with far-removed judges, uh, and, and sent back to their countries of origin. This has been going on for quite a while. What was not going on, and has only happened recently, though, is taking children, separating them from their parents, and yes, putting them in cages. I mean, I think about the years of trauma Mm. and damage that flows from that, right? It's, It's horrendous to think about. It's horrendous to contemplate. And, and I haven't heard a plan yet. Uh, are they going to keep these kids until they're 18? And then what? They're, they're no more legal at 18 than they are at 12 or 10 or 6 or 2. And what is the psychological trauma of being separated from your family in a foreign country, uh, 
place with strangers. We've already heard cases of sexual abuse, mm-hmm. both from other detainees, to use that word, and staff. We've only had the tip of the iceberg to employ a cliche about this. Is it, um, is it right for me to describe what, what happens with Nico, who is this young boy who essentially, I thought of it as gets radicalized into violence. Is that, is, is that a right description? Well, typically that word is used to describe somebody who's, you know, going into terrorism of some kind, which, which Nico isn't. I think that this kid is the ultimate pragmatist and the ultimate survivor. Hmm. And he does what he needs to do to survive. I don't want to give away too much of the story, you know, but, uh, this is a kid raised in the garbage dumps of Guatemala city. You know, I I think one of the most heartbreaking scenes I've, I've ever written is this kid wanting to eat half a McDonald's hamburger he finds in the garbage and realizes he can't afford it. You know, that his mother needs the money that he could get from reselling that half of a hamburger. Uh, and he, he does find his way into the United States. And uh, there are things there to greet him with that were exactly the things that he was running from. Uh, so he survives, you know, and he does what he needs to do. And I, and I also think he's a kid. You know, he, he doesn't have the wisdom. He doesn't have the judgment. Uh, he can't see around the next corner. You know, to avoid some of what seem to be obvious pitfalls to us as as adults. Have you, um, I don't know, in some ways surrendered any optimism that, you know, immigration reform can be figured out in a place that's where there's a lot of demagoguery and paralysis? Look, I refuse to surrender optimism because pessimism is not a choice. It's a suicide pact. You know, it, it's it's easy these, and particularly these days, to be pessimistic and to be cynical, and and we have very good reason to be. Mm-hmm. But then what? How do you get up in the morning? How do you do the the small necessary things? You know, we can't just give up. Uh, I, I think it's incumbent on us, without being moralistic or preachy here, to do at least the little things, the small things that that we can do such as well such as speak out such as protest such as uh, advocate for education such as volunteer you know i'm out on the road now i was in texas the other day i met two people who who volunteer as legal aides for these kids in detention did they tell you something about that experience that you know, informs the way you're thinking about this, that opened your your mind in some ways? You know, I really kind of already knew the information. I was somewhat gratified in them telling me that I got it right. But it encourages me. It's heartening to find people who are out there doing that. That's the kind of thing we need to be doing. and, and, And we need to be talking to each other, you know, about what are we really doing here? We used to think big in this country. We used to to have big ideas. My my wife and I drive across country every year. Uh, done it for the last eleven years. I drive sometimes through ghost towns, hmm. where there's a post office and some boarded up stores, and a few people hanging on in their houses. I, I've I drive into larger towns that 
once had blossoming little downtowns that now look seedy, literally overgrown, that once had these beautiful squares. Some of these towns, by the way, have Spanish names. And I wonder sometimes, you know, and by the way, having driven these back roads and highways, you can't tell me we don't have space for these people. You cannot tell me that. And I wonder sometimes, you know, what if we just said, come on in? Maybe you spend three to five years in one of these towns, in one of these places. And instead of putting $8 billion in building a wall trying to keep you out, we put that money into economic development. And we rebuilt some of these towns and revitalized some of these areas. This is when you're going between, what, California and Rhode Island? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. When you when you made that drive the first mm-hmm. time yeah. after the, the President Trump had been elected. Yeah. Did you did you pass through parts of America that you thought you know, given given the voting patterns and the totals, I don't understand parts of this place like I thought I had. I mean, yeah, I Yeah. Including my hometown, including where I live. Where in California or Rhode Island? Yeah, I'm not going to say it because, you know, people out there who don't like me. But uh, uh, I live in rural Southern California, not very far from the Mexican border. Live right. on an old ranch. Mm-hmm. Live in cowboy country that is nevertheless about a third Mexican-American. And uh, I got up that morning thinking I, I don't – it's not the place that, that I thought it was. Now, having said that, uh, you know, one of the points that I try to bring out is that these areas have been bicultural since before there was that border. Hmm. Are you still devoting Sundays to reading fiction or have you, I think I read that somewhere in one of those by yeah. the book things. Yes. Yeah, I am. Yeah. And that's to the your... extent that I can right now. Yeah. Okay. And that's your day for delving, you know, not a, you're not working, you're not researching in any way. Right. You're really just letting your imagination take you through your reading experience. So, so what does that mean I'm you've just been enjoying reading? it. That's good. Let's see. What did I do last Sunday was Richard Russo's That Old Cape Magic. <laughs> that is so funny. You know, he's got a new novel coming out and the I'm publicist so just told me that it is it's kind of a it's in the vein of That Old Cape Magic and I thought, "Oh my is that gosh, right? how long ago did that come out?" A yeah. long time ago. Yes. But, you know, I read Richard Russo, it makes me want to quit. What? Why? It does, because it's so good. I'll, you know, uh, look, I could write for, you know, a hundred years. I'll never be that good. <laughs> so, uh, I, you know, I enjoy reading it, but, you know, I, I just kind of want to go out and, you know, throw my keyboard into the river or something. That, that makes me laugh because uh, some people say, and I can do that, and some people say, oh my gosh, I might as well give up, which you're not going to do. So No, I'm not. Right? I'm not. But when I read, sadly, the late Jim Harrison, mm-hmm. and when I, you know, I read Richard Russo, I do have that impulse. It's like, what am I doing? Why do I bother? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and yet you get on Monday morning right back to the keyboard. Five thirty Monday morning, I'm back at it, being you know nowhere as good as Richard Russo. <laughs> uh, I, I was looking for something. I like to close interviews at, like this with some kind of moody music, and I I thought I landed on Miles Davis "All Blues." I thought that might. Oh yeah, is that sure. okay? 
Does That's that work? Perfect. Thank you. One of the great jazz albums ever. Don, thank you very much. Thanks for the time and the conversation and the writing, and I'm looking forward to what comes next. Thank you. I always enjoy our conversation, so thanks a lot. John Winslow's new novel is called The Border, part of a trilogy that's including The Power of the Dog and The Cartel.